everyone and welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin. I'm joined here by Alex. Hey, Alex. Hey, Justin. Hey. <laughs> and we're also joined by Noah. Hey, Noah. You have my sword. And my axe. And my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One podcast to outrank them all. Why are you talking about cereal during our episode, Noah? <laughs> <laughs> In case you couldn't tell from that incredibly well-conceived opening, we are <laughs> we are discussing Lord of the Rings partially because of the new film Tolkien, the biopic about the younger days of J.R.R. Tolkien. Boy, that's fun to say, Tolkien. Um, Don't say it wrong. He'll correct you. He will correct you, as we know. <laughs> as will many a nerd, I'm sure. Uh, but we also thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk about Lord of the Rings, a series that we all loved before this and then just recently revisited. Uh, so we'll be discussing that as well. It's the 60th anniversary of the publishing of The Fellowship of the Ring, you guys. That is why we're doing this. This is our official Cinema Joe's Lord of the Rings retrospective. Hashtag raw and wriggling. Yeah, that's how we like it. That's how folks. we, Yeah. So we're planning on devoting quite a bit of time to uh, Lord of the Rings, to the film series. Uh, so I think we're going to issue our full disclosure segment and just jump into our discussion of Tolkien, uh, which Alex and I have seen. I don't believe, Noah, you have. I have not. So you get to hear us deliver our <laughs> meh responses to it. I had an opportunity to see it when I was in London. I made the conscious decision to devote that time and money to other things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was the wrong choice. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, Alex, what are things that you liked about? This okay. Movie? Yeah, sure. That's good. Um, <laughs> I liked the companionship uh, that was at the center of the film. It was surprising that this was what the movie was mostly about. But um, nevertheless, it is mostly about the story of Tolkien as a teenage boy at a prep school and like the friends that he makes along the way. Then he forms a bit of a fellowship for himself. And I thought that many of the dynamics there worked well, especially when they were older, I think. Mm -hmm. because there's there's two sets of actors who play these characters. There's a group that are like about 13 or 14 and then a group uh, that are meant to portray the characters between I think the ages of 16 and uh, their adult life. It's a very wide age range for the adult actors to play. But um, yeah, I thought that that camaraderie really worked. Um, it's kind of the emotional spine of the film in a lot of ways. And so without it, it like the movie would suffer significantly. And for the most part, it was good. I don't think it was anything more notable than any other like coming of age in a boarding school story than I've that I've seen. But given that fact, like it still was watchable in that respect. Yeah, I, I felt about the same. I really liked some of the visual imagery that we get, especially on the battlefield during the World War One sequences. I wanted to like that stuff so much more than I did. Mm -hmm. I like I saw bits of it in the trailer for the film and I thought, oh, this is going to be what makes it really interesting. Like we're going to get to see the things that traumatized him in World War One, which is like very notable. Like that is like a huge part of what 
forms the like emotional center of his creation of the Lord of the Rings franchise was the trauma that he suffered in World War One. And so I thought like, oh, we're going to get to see that trauma through this subver- like this subjective um, magical realism way that's informed by his imagination. And I just didn't think there was nearly enough of it. And what yeah. they did with it was just okay. Like it wasn't bad, but it was like it wasn't a lot and it was like few and far between it almost sounds like you could almost take a pan's labyrinth approach to telling the story of tolkien's life in that sense you know like that's what i was hoping that would have been a lot yeah that's a lot riskier than i think these filmmakers ever intended (laughs) i guess but that (laughs) is if you want like did you justin did you see the trailer for the film i did not actually Okay, they kind of sell it like that. They kind of sell Mm -hmm. it like, oh, it's his life. And we're going to keep checking in with like the imagination, uh, the creativity, the magical realism that is is informing his life. Like Mm -hmm. the iconography of Lord of the Rings that you're familiar with. We're going to juxtapose that with his life in interesting ways Hmm. that'll help you understand how these events informed the world that you know, which is the world that he created. Right. And they just don't do that enough yeah it's not consistent no i feel like earlier on there's some interesting things with with the imagery in terms of it being sort of ambiguous as to whether we're witnessing the actual footage of the battle that he's in or if we're witnessing sort of like his imagination working and imagining like a blasted landscape in middle earth um yeah there's some really interesting like stuff with the flames at points we we it almost seems like we're looking at like dragons or something mm-hmm. and i would agree like i like that on its own i enjoyed those parts of it i don't believe it's integrated into the film necessarily because the rest of it kind of no. feels like a standard like biopic that you might see on like bbc right and we should say this film has a very odd structure to it where it's it's we have kind of two dueling narratives going. One is this quest that he is on during World War One to get like he's in the trenches and he's trying mm-hmm. to find his friend to make sure that his friend is OK. And then so like you occasionally but very occasionally cut back to this storyline. And then the rest of the film is him remembering his like younger days, like like when he met his friends, like as he grew up, all of the, the, the hijinks that they got into and the drama of it all and. And then eventually the film catches up to the flash forwards, I guess, that we've been seeing. And then it kind of continues on from there. So yeah, did did that structure work for you at all? Not really. Um, I was trying to figure out what the intention of that was because it seemed like a lot of the battle scenes were there to show how dead set he was on trying to reconnect with his friends and I guess they were trying to intersperse them for us to see that dynamic. Uh, but yeah, I don't know why you couldn't have done that. I don't know why you needed to do necessarily cross cut between them. Yeah, um, I would agree. Yeah, it was a, it was an. I don't know if it was. <laughs> it seems like a choice that was maybe made to make it appear more interesting than the film actually was. Yeah, because ultimately it's just a pretty generic coming of age, like. British boarding school drama mm-hmm. and it's not in any way a bad version of it it's also not in any way a, a particularly good version of it it's just a very straight across the bow kind of you know like straightforward version of this story that I think we've seen a number of times and it just seems like a real missed opportunity because 
the thing that's interesting about J.R.R. Tolkien, as I said, is that he was traumatized by World War One and then created this entire mythic landscape around like trying to process the unprocessable, you know, <laughs> and like, why not see that story? Why only give us glimpses of that story while we're in the middle of a, a much more generic story? I don't get that choice. Yeah. And, and it's also a case where, you know, Nicholas Holt, who I feel like we've all really enjoyed in things like Mad Max Fury Road and, and skin favorite, Oh, and Skins, of course. How could I forget? Um, <laughs> I've not seen that one. Um, but I'm thinking, <laughs> that, like, that's how you could forget. <laughs> like, he's so good at playing these kind of outsized characters. So to see him play this more kind of like, just kind of sullen. I mean, you know, just I don't know. It's just not as it's not as interesting as it could have been. And maybe I don't know what Tolkien was like necessarily, but in terms of just watching this character on film. He's not particularly interesting other than like his experiences for me. Well, and also there's just the problem where like he is a man in his early 30s and he has a youthful look, but he's still a man in his early 30s. And he is primarily being asked to play someone between the ages of like 16 and 22. (laughs) And all of the supporting and all of his supporting cast members seem like they are much closer to the age, like at least the high end age of of that like they all seem like they're in their early 20s and he seems like a decade older than them and i don't i don't understand the purpose of that because pretty much like there's really only a couple of scenes towards the end when he is older so it seems like why not cast a younger actor and then age him up slightly in the final seat like couple of scenes mm-hmm. of the movie and then make the movie work much better did you by any chance see the the JD Salinger biopic that he starred in uh, called Rebel in the Rye, which came no, out last year. No, I did not. I heard. I remember hearing about it, and then just kind of flew off my yeah. radar. Well, I I remember hearing about it as well, and hearing that it was not good. Um, oh, okay. So I didn't see it uh, as a result. But I would. I I'm curious when you mentioned that he's usually plays kind of like these very charismatic, very big characters, um, and then he is playing a very kind of like quiet insular sullen sort i'm curious if he kind of ported over his jd salinger because you know Mm. i mean jd salinger is in real life was a like very you know reclusive person i don't know how he's portrayed in that movie but i would imagine it would be at least somewhat similar to how he plays tolkien here It, it could be and it could be the kind of like i don't know if it's the sense of like wanting to pay reverence to someone who's so beloved and so like influential yeah but yeah it just it does it's not as interesting as it could be yeah which literary master would you like him to do a biopic for to complete the trilogy Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh well c.s lewis <laughs> <laughs> i think that's too close to tolkien <laughs> that's a good question it has to be uh, someone who you would not think would make a good biopic uh be it to follow the trends <laughs> Okay, well, I was trying to go with who I think he would be good as, <laughs> but no, um, I mean he. Mu- I mean, I think you have to go with someone who he would be miscast as, oh, okay. uh, as he has in the last two films, hmm. <laughs> to keep the trilogy going. Yeah, Hemingway. Maybe we we'll let our <laughs> listeners ponder that, and uh, they can contact us on Anchor via voicemail or Twitter at Cinema Joes or at Instagram at Cinema Joes if you want to give us your thoughts on uh, what Nicholas Holt's next mediocre literary biopic should be. (laughs) 
we did want to transition into our discussion of our revisit of Lord of the Rings, uh, which I don't know about you guys, but I had not seen in a quite a while. I don't remember yeah. the last time I saw the first two. I did rewatch Return of the King for my best picture countdown, but that was like five years ago now. So mm-hmm. it had been it, a while. For me too. <laughs> yeah, same here. I think it, it's got to have been years. Yeah, I believe that I, the last time I saw these films was six or seven years ago. Um, but I saw them with the director's commentary on. Uh, so that isn't even entirely the same experience as watching them. Yeah, that's on their that, own. that that is fundamentally different. So the last time that I just like sat and watched these films all the way through, it was it's it must be like a decade ago, I think, at this point. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So I guess so. It had been a little while then. Yeah. I should say I watched the extended edition versions of all three on uh, Blu-ray. How did you guys watch it? So I just watched the theatrical version. In the yeah, cinema? Same here. <laughs> what format did you watch it on? <laughs> oh, uh, on DVD on my TV. Yes, same. Okay. I, I had a weird issue where the, the volume seemed to be off. I don't know why. I had to turn the volume up very, very high uh, to get it to a reasonable level. but. I, mean, I had well, I had an issue where I was constantly fiddling with the volume because for the action scenes it was way too loud, and then for the yeah, like for the um, regular scenes it was way too low. But I think that's just a factor of that I was watching it on like a fairly standard television and not using mm-hmm. a kind of three dimensional like uh, surround sound audio system, which I think mm-hmm. especially a Blu-ray presentation is probably optimized for. So I don't think that that's, yeah. I think that's more on me than on the movie. <laughs> um, I will say as just a funny uh, aside, um, it was really funny to watch how, like when you start up the Blu-rays, um, they are very proud of the fact that you're watching it in 1080p. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, wow, these aren't that old, but that is like, you would never brag about that now because like we've gone so far past that at this point. Yeah. Um, I wonder, have, have these been re-released on 4k remastered by now? Oh, I don't know. That is a good question. I can tell you they looked, I thought they looked fantastic just on the DVD that <laughs> Which I'm yeah, sure and it is... looks great on Blu-ray as well. <laughs> I should say, like the I I was really impressed with how well many of the effects held up. Yeah, right. Like these movies are almost twenty years old. I mean, given given that I now have you know I'm much older and having seen a lot more movies and like we're we're also amateur film critics in that sense. I could definitely my my eye was definitely much more able to catch like okay that was definitely a blue screen effect like okay that was computer generated like in a lot of moments but at no point did it look bad even the stuff where my brain was able to recognize ah okay like when I was a kid I wouldn't have noticed that but now I recognize that that's you know a computer effect or, or a green screenshot um none of it looks bad like it is it is all aged incredibly well yeah, like considering that these are films that were released in 2001, 2002, and 2003, I and think made, that the made effects... earlier than that. Well, yeah, yeah but when, the effects... When were the production years? Well, the, so they started filming it in, I believe, 1999. Um, oh, okay. But the effects got were... Like, the way that effects work in film is that, like, they work on rendering it 
up until like right before the release of the film. So I think that like I think that's why, for instance, like certain things in the Fellowship of the Ring don't look as good as things in the in mm. Return of the King because you know those two years mm. like really uh, represented a significant advancement in this type of technology in the first place. Mm. I distinctly remember when I first saw these movies as a kid. I legitimately like it felt like I was like all of it was real. I was seeing all real things. Now that I'm older, I could much more clearly tell what were effects and what weren't. Um, but I, I was pleased to note that that in no way diminished the the impact that it had on me. Hmm. Yeah, and I just I I would I would broadly agree with you, but I would say that there's a difference between like saying okay, well in. 2019 these things might be rendered a bit more significant like with more pixels and they might be smoothed into the texture of the of this film a bit better versus this is really standing out as an old effect that dates the movie and i don't think there's many things in the movie that make the film look particularly dated which is really a testament to to the incredible feats that weta uh, the visual effects team behind these films were able to accomplish. Mm. And it was impressive to me you know, seeing certain scenes and having a little bit of knowledge about the making of the film to know that like certain scenes like during Helm's Deep, especially when the ladders are coming onto the wall, like that's like all computer generated, or at least all the figures are. And to see it and be like, no, that still looks great. <laughs> like, So to yeah. know that it was like computer yeah. generated and then to see it and still feel like it's well integrated into the way the film looks, that really is a credit to the special effects. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So I, I have to say, like going into revisiting these movies, this was this was a holy experience for me. Like this was a genuinely like <laughs> this was a genuinely sacred experience for me to go back and just go through these movies. And that's also kind of a reason why I wanted it to be the, I mean, I do, I've seen all the extended cuts and I do plan to watch them again when I have time, but I, for this retrospective, I wanted to see the theatrical cuts. Cause those are the ones that I saw obsessively and repeatedly throughout my middle school and high school years. Um, so that's the one that th- those are the ones that I have the most emotional connection with. Whereas the director's cuts for me are just, extra extended editions noah yes the extended editions sorry (laughs) the past few months i've been going through a lot of stuff personally and professionally um i have had a lot of moments over the past few months where i've really felt like god i just wish that i could cry and that would make me feel better during the the concluding credits after sam says well i'm back and then the credits start for return of the king and the song starts up, I was sobbing the entire time. Wow. All of the digital artists, all of the, the cast and crew being listed, I was sobbing. You, that's pretty beautiful, Noah. Um, it also makes me kind of curious. I think we should probably briefly go into like how we got started being fans of the film. Sure. Because I, I think we could say all three of us are... Uh, and have been fans of all three of this trilogy uh, for a very long time. So, Justin, how did how did you get started as as a fan of so this? So, a lot of this has to do with my parents and especially my dad, who was a huge fan of the books. Um, they're like one of his fa- they're always one of his favorites. And 
I remember when this film was announced, when actually when the first trailer dropped, he was like, we need to go see this like as a family. So honestly, it was more him wanting to see it than me because I saw the trailers and I'm like, I don't know what this is. It looks kind of looks like a horror movie because like of all these like weird shots in the trailer, like of like when Gandalf comes back from doing his research and stuff and how haggard and, you know, terrified he looks. Um, so I didn't really know what I, I was look getting when into. I try to do research as well. Usually <laughs> like after a term paper in college, that's pretty much what yeah, my look was. That's fair. Um, <laughs> so I didn't really know what I was getting into with this. And it was one of those things like, and I remembered hearing also from my dad that he had seen the animated version of this. I think the Ralph Bakshi version and hated it. So like when he saw <laughs> that this was a thing, he was like, we need to go see this. Like, I was like, okay, sure. So I didn't really have many expectations going in. <laughs> I don't even think I realized it was going to be three hours long. Um, and I just, and then I saw it, I saw fellowship and I just remember like basically being in so I was 12 years old at the time. So I was in like, this was like 12 year old Justin's heaven. It was like everything that I loved in a movie action adventure fantasy it was like everything that i loved and it's like all brought together and so fully realized and so seriously committed to right there's like no there was no winking at the audience it was just like that full commitment mm. and everything else of course like i was really into the action and the fighting i thought that was so cool and it was just everything that i wanted and that was held true for the other two and we'll get into like, you know, revisiting them now, but that was kind of how I got into them. I went back and read the mm. books after that um, and enjoyed them, but maybe for different reasons in a weird way. So, so that's my experience. And Noah, you had a paternal connection as well, right? Oh yeah, no, my mother and her siblings, uh, they were children of the forest. They grew up playing in the woods and the fields uh, and just reading. So Lord of the Rings was an integral part of my mother's childhood. So I grew up hearing about the books and I was maybe trying to think how old I was. I think 10 or 11 where my mother, like it, it was maybe a year and a half. I might've been 10. It was a little bit before the Fellowship of the Ring came out. Um, and my mother was like, okay, it's time. You, you got to sit down and read The Hobbit. And then I read The Hobbit and uh, I did a report in it for school. And then I read The Fellowship of the Ring. And then I tried to, I started on The Two Towers. And at the time, I mean, Tolkien has a particular style and I wasn't yet mentally in a place where I could really get into and appreciate his writing style. So I kind of, I found it a little bit hard to get through, to get into The Two Towers. And I, I, I sort of stopped early on. Then the first movie came out. Uh, my mom went to see it on her own to like see, okay, like, did they do it justice? And she came back and she was like, oh, it's amazing. And then I went out to see the movie again with her. And then in two weeks, I'd finished the trilogy. <laughs> uh, I, oh, just, wow. I just plowed through them. I was like, well, fire in my belly. Gonna do I this. Have, that's, that's funny. I have a very different story. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so, well, it's not different entirely, but at the very end, it's very different. But I'll get to that. Uh, so... When I was around this age, I was going to the movies a lot with my father. Um, it was pretty much the only time I ever saw him was when he was taking me to the movies. Uh, and he was a really big Lord of the Rings fan. And so we went and saw it. Growing up, I sometimes had a hard time connecting with my parents. And so what I would do is I would find out the like the pop culture that they really liked. 
and I would develop a relationship with it, like almost as a like a stand-in for developing a relationship with them. Uh, so that was kind of my experience with Lord of the Rings, where it was like, oh, it's this thing that he really likes. I'm going to try to get into it. And I remember I also had a geography teacher in fifth and sixth grade, and she was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. She was like growing up like in she was in college in the 70s and she just was like a, this was like a huge part of her like early 20s life is like digesting these books and loving these books and i remember like in 5th grade she would talk to us every once in a while about how excited she was for these movies to come out and how she was on these like message boards online and they were like t- talking about rumors about what the movies were going to be <laughs> and so oh, these are early inter- these are early internet message yeah, boards yeah yeah like old school no message Nazis. boards no <laughs> well <laughs> who knows but um <laughs> but yeah so i so i was very so there was generally just this idea of this was like this older this this thing that was important to older people and that I could kind of access in order to understand older people better. And that's how I came to watch these films. It's also why I spent an entire summer watching uh, TV land. Um, But that's a whole other story. Uh, So, and I watched, so I watched the first film and I really liked it. Uh, I was so upset that Gandalf died, like so upset. And my dad did not tell me that he was coming back because he didn't want to ruin it for me, I guess. And so I was just like very upset by that moment. And I bought the trilogy of books and I carried the Two Tower novel with me in school as my like pleasure reading book for an entire year. And I never read more than five pages of it because um, <laughs> so, I'm not a big book reader is a thing that like you guys, different five pages I, or the same five pages. It was kind of like every so often the teacher would say, get out your pleasure reading book and I would take it out and like have the one page open and I would read it. Um, and that would be pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> so I never really I, I've not, reading has never been my thing but in any case <laughs> so yeah so then I just kind of fell in love with them and then when I heard about the the extended editions it was like oh I have to watch these and so I got them on DVD and then when they came out on Blu-ray I got them on Blu-ray and I used to watch these all the time and they were like a really big part of my life uh in middle school I would say and then uh going into high school I started to become more interested in other things uh, but for that period of time, it was like huge. I remember seeing the return of the king and I have such a terrible story about that because I had uh, broken my ankle. And so I was on crutches and we got seats that were like second row. And this is like back when second row is like really, really bad seats. And so I was like kind of squeezed up and like in a corner, like trying to watch the movie, very physically uncomfortable. And then I had to use oh, the bathroom. Yeah, that's no good. And I was like, that's okay, no this good. movie's going to be over really soon. And then I could finally get, and then I could get out of this position and go to the bathroom and then the movie had so many friggin endings i was so angry because i was like okay cue the spongebob voice 10 endings later (laughs) yeah because i kept being like okay well this is the ending okay there's more okay but now this is the ending okay no but okay this really has to be the ending because i can't sit in the seat anymore (laughs) and it wasn't it never was the ending i think i think a part of my soul is still in that movie theater right now watching (laughs) 
you're still that little boy with an insanely full bladder <laughs> waiting yes. for the return to, waiting for the king to actually return yeah i was ready for the the king to leave again is what i was ready for um but <laughs> nevertheless french in, revolution up in this shit <laughs> but nevertheless i still had very fond memories of it um and i really really liked these and it was like a core part of my identity for like a brief period of time uh and so it was very interesting to watch it again so many years later um, and interacting it with it on as an adult, like with far different cultural references as, uh, to inform my viewing experience. And uh, yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, and we obviously will, we can talk about other things too, but just to kind of get us started, what I wanted to ask on this rewatch for you guys, what surprised you? What's something that maybe you hadn't remembered or something that really stuck out for you? Given the fact that one of the inherent weaknesses um, in the Lord of the Rings text, and therefore it is a weakness in the movie, I did pay more attention this time around than I ever had previously to how the only two uh, female characters of consequence are handled, Eowyn and Arwen because the very, very sausage-heavy nature uh, of this story, that is like that is very much a product of the time in which Tolkien created and wrote these books. Like as, as incredible as incredible a work of art and literature as I hold the stories to be, that is a clear weakness in the original text. And therefore, because Jackson mostly very, very faithfully adapted the text to the screen, it is a weakness present in the movies as well. There are only two women of, of consequence in all three movies, Arwen and Eowyn. I paid much more attention to how those two are treated. I mean, Kate Blanchett also hmm. a little bit. Okay, no, that's true. Sorry. Uh, although, I mean, she's there. Galadriel is there. She's a person more... of great import. She does not have a yeah. ton of screen time or a ton of things to do. Okay. Um, so but she is also the narrator. I mean, that's true. I mean, yeah, she doesn't have a lot to do, I guess, but like, she is like a huge part of the story. She telling. doesn't spend that much time narrating either. When, when Lindsay Ellis did a retrospective of the Lord <laughs> of the Rings when the first Hobbit movie came out, she started with that clip, and she's like, "For none now live who remember." And then Lindsay's like, "Well, except for you and this guy, and then this guy, and then Hugo <laughs> Weaving over here. There are a lot of people who remember, but it, it sounds cool." <laughs> yeah, it's like Hugo Weaving was there. How did he forget? <laughs> Well, no, he doesn't. We find out later. <laughs> no, the problem is that no one listens to him. Hugo Weaving's like, the one ring is still out there. They're like, shut up, Grandpa. This you was know a nothing. Big, this was a big moment for Hugo. I thought Hugo Weaving was like the biggest star in Hollywood <clears throat> because he was in all of the Lord of the Ring movies and the two Matrix sequels at yeah. the same time. It was like, this is like, this guy yeah. is huge. I thought he was like Tom Cruise. And it's like, turns out he's just in those movies. And then like, he, he went back to being a character <laughs> actor um, until he played the Red Skull like over a decade later. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I paid much more attention to how the women, the female characters were handled. I the, okay. This is something that in, in as part of that I noticed for the first time at the beginning of the two towers we have these two children who are sent off by their mother uh, to flee the barbarian hordes that are being let loose in the lands of the Rohirrim, uh, and when the two children they're being sent to Edoras to warn Theod and the king, when they arrive, the girl is still like she's there she's awake she's ready 
She's still on the horse. It's the boy who passes out like a wussy and almost breaks his neck. That really stuck out to me. <laughs> he was the one, like, riding the horse, though, so probably that took more effort, uh, which no, could be was... why he was so exhausted. Uh, we, we both know who was riding that horse. Uh, <laughs> the I, girl's, I like, say, five like, years I, old, for the record. Like, watching these movies for the first time in years... In each, th- in all, th- in each of the movies, there were maybe five or six individual shots that I had forgotten. But other than that, it was like, nope. Wow. I remember exactly how this was shot. I remember that orc that gets its head chopped off. I remember yeah. the sound of those arrows hitting that that troll body. My experience is so different. Hmm. I was shocked by how much I had forgotten about these movies because I have seen them a number Hmm. of times. Again, I have not seen them recently, but I have seen them a number of times. That's why I asked the question. All right. So, Alex, Alex, let's transition to you then. What was surprising, what was refreshing for me was to to realize just how little I'd actually forgotten, aside from like really a handful of shots was all that I was like, oh. I was surprised by how much I didn't remember. Like, really, the only things that I remembered were the things involving the hobbits. And when I when I thought about it more, I realized that's because those were the characters that I really connected with on an emotional level and was engaged in their emotional arcs as characters throughout the film. And I'm not, like, despite liking superhero movies and stuff like that, I'm not a huge action guy. Typically during action scenes, my eyes just kind of glaze over and I... Uh, try my best not to zone out and like just wait until the next like emotional beat in the story uh and i was really surprised by the like the effect that that had on how i remembered the movies because i just really didn't remember much that happened with aragon and uh gimli and orlando bloom's character's name is legolas legolas Legolas. yeah see i don't even remember their names like they just didn't factor for me because listen, that listen wasn't to my... your maester, Alex. <laughs> that wasn't the way that I entered into the story, and that wasn't what I connected with at the time. And what has what has really resonated with me over the years when I look back on those films is that is like primarily the dynamic between Sam and Frodo and Gollum, and those like that core of the story, which is really the heart of the film, in my opinion, is what I connect with really deeply and what I found really interesting on rewatch. And I remembered almost every single beat to their interactions. And I remembered almost nothing else of the rest of the the films. Like I was so surprised by the amount of different like castles and kingdoms and like tribes of people and the different things. Like I remembered when they went in the first movie that they go to the, the crypts and the orc like monster comes and everything and then the, and then that's what and it's then a the mine. big fire it's alex it's not a crypt it's a mine well they're all dead and it's underground give me a break <laughs> <laughs> so i remember that whole sequence because that's where gandalf dies right you know but then like i was shocked by all of the things that had happened in the in the two towers that i didn't remember did any of that like make an impression on you do like do you think that you'll remember more of the films now no, honestly, like what I like. <laughs> so what was impressive to me was that Viggo Mortensen is amazing in these movies and he is just so, so good in the role. And he is like he's kind of channeling this kind of like hybrid between Jamie Lannister and uh, Jon Snow in a way that was very interesting to me, um, having watched it <laughs> um, now with Game of Thrones in the back of my head. Um, but 
I just I really I really liked everything that he was doing. And when he was on screen, he was very captivating. But he was often bogged down by a lot of just like the fantasy nonsense that I just don't particularly care that much about. Um, like it's like he's the king. Uh, he's hmm. the king that has, is in in isolation. But then there's like these other kingdoms and there's so many different kingdoms but then if he was to be king they would all listen to him but because he's not king now there's all these other kings and but this guy isn't even really a king he's just a steward and he tries i that was one thing that i also remembered was the burning the sun alive that was like very traumatic for me as a 13 year old (laughs) and i'll never forget that i remember just being right there with pip and being like, what? Why are you doing this? Like, like it was very upsetting. Um, You're not a good father. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, yeah, that's basically, that's that's it for me. I, I just like, I was surprised by how much of the movie I didn't care about when I went back and rewatched it. And like, I think that a lot of that stuff is extremely well executed. I think that it's well acted. I really respect the incredible like feat of cinema that it takes to perform those scenes and to make these like giant battles and to really make this world feel real and textured and stuff but every time that i wasn't watching one of the hobbits i just didn't care as much and that surprised me oh interesting did you remember did you have a clear memory of the march of the ends yeah but they're with the hobbits well because that was like that for me was one of the defining moments out of all three of these movies that like always, always uh, was at the forefront of my mind when I thought of these movies. What I remember is, is that they get stuck with the Ents for a while and they try to get the Ents to help them. And then eventually after like being annoying, they finally agree to help. That's, that's what I remembered. And (laughs) (laughs) there's more, there's more interesting stuff there, which I liked watching uh, like now, but that's what I remembered at the time. And I I think that this sequence is actually much better than what my memory led me to believe initially. (laughs) But, uh, well, because like it was a very smart moment for Pippin and it's a very powerful moment in that, like you were, you see this scene of devastation of like this whole ancient forest has just been ruined and Treebeard didn't know Treebeard didn't know right yeah and it's the literal version as i think Tolkien himself said of Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane yeah yeah which is really like cool literally the <laughs> yeah i i still think that one of the best and most memorable action beats in all three of the movies is that very first action scene um in the mines of Moria starting in uh, the tomb of Balin and going all the way up through um, the the fall of Gandalf. Uh, that's just an mm. incredibly visceral and gripping and engaging scene from start to finish. And like every blow, every arrow that shot, every like sword stroke just really lands. And also the way it's the way it's filmed with the, with like so much of the outer edge of the frame enveloped in shadow, so that like when the orcs appear, like it seems like they're just crawling out of darkness. Yeah. Yeah, that's really I mean, that's really like I can't stress enough how tech just on a technical level, how impressive these things are. I know. But it also just adds to the atmosphere and to the seriousness with which they with which Jackson and his team took the material. And I have to say that was that was a clear moment. That's a moment I remember clearly the first time I saw the Fellowship of the Ring when they flee out of the um, the room with the tomb and they're going back through the main courtyard and you get these establishing shots of just like a freaking million goblins like pouring out of the the ground and the walls and the ceiling even i distinctly yeah. remember being a kid sitting in the theater like at that time i didn't swear but if i've been using my modern i was like 
oh my god they're screwed there's <laughs> like i had this, this cleared like this moment in my head i'm going <laughs> yeah i i want to i want to ask i want to ask justin what changed for him watching it this time around that's true yeah well so i would say it was it was kind of like my memory of it was so was so i don't know if it was strong as much as it was just like these movies have just meant so much to me that they've always been like a really good memory and i i remember like going back to revisit it being like maybe a little bit trepidatious that maybe it like wouldn't hold up the way it did in my memory and seeing them now just kind of like I don't know, just like it enforced that. I I noticed new things. I mean, especially just the subtleties of the world building in this, I think mm -hmm. is what really surprised me. And I I think was I think when I watched them the first time, I think it's one of those things where you don't really you don't necessarily recognize it. Like it's all it's part of your viewing experience and you might not pick up on it. Um, this time I did feel like I was picking up on a lot more of those little things. And that could be anything from like the production design to just the amount of coverage that we get on a, in a lot of these scenes like you mentioned before about moria um you know there's like there's like the huge shot of all of them but then there's also shots where it's almost like the camera looking down from one of these pillars that the orcs are yeah. crawling toward the ground on um or little things like in when they're in lothlorien in fellowship and the the wood elves there are offering this lament for gandalf and Legolas remarks that, you know, it's they're lamenting for him. And I think Mary asks him, like, well, what are they saying? And he said, I don't have not the heart to tell you. It's just like this little moment. And it's like you have no idea, like, because there's they're singing Elvis. You can't even make it out anyway. Um, and the way it actually he actually films that you don't see the elves singing, but you just see the trees and the lights mm. in the trees. So it almost seems like they're coming from some kind of like ethereal being or, or beings. It's just real like little stuff like that mm. really does like add a lot to this world. And it's I feel like it's this balance that so many not just fantasy, but any kind of any kind of like fantastical world can be I think could fall into the trap of either over explaining things. So like you get a 10 minute scene of them, like explaining exactly how this works, like what people's jobs are, what they do, like mm -hmm. where they're from, their history. Like you can get stuff like that. And then you can also get these moments that feel almost like throwaway where it's just like the, the movie or, or show like paying lip service to this world that they're supposedly creating. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like this film just really strikes that balance so yeah. well of giving you enough yeah. so that it's interesting and feels like this world has existed, but not enough so that there's still not mystery to it. I yeah. agree entirely. I think that it's so incredibly lived in and that's, what's really, really great about it. And I think that's what makes it like in these moments where you're like, okay, I don't remember what the name of this castle is or what the name of this tribe is like it doesn't matter because you feel almost like you're in a real place like on vacation you know or it's like i don't remember <laughs> the name of the streets but like I, I but this feels like a real enough place that i can navigate it without knowing the name of the streets you know what i mean mm. like that's the sense that you get mm -hmm. where which i think it's very difficult to do and another thing that i wanted to say that i really liked this time around i remember like Noah, you were talking talking earlier about the different uh the two main female characters in the film and mm -hmm. how they were treated and how they're kind of marginalized i remember that uh there was a lot of complaints about Liv tyler's performance in the films when it came out uh there was a lot of complaints before it even came out that she was cast 
in the role because she was not known to be a particularly good actress. I remember at the time, like 11, 12, 13 year old me being like very defensive about this and being like, no, she's really good. These guys suck that they're complaining about her. I love her character. She's the best, whatever. Uh, Like cut to now. I actually really like Liv Tyler as an actress. She is unbelievable in the second and third season of The Leftovers, uh, an HBO series from Mm. a few years ago. Really, like you would never believe how good she is in in that series, playing a cult leader, uh, and <laughs> with a with like a sick death wish. Uh, it's really really interesting performance, and so I was like, oh well, I was right about her from the beginning. So obviously revisiting her now, I'm going to be even more into it. And uh, no, I found her to be I found her character to be incredibly bland and like wishy-washy and it's like and I think part of this is I saw the extended edition I know that there is a lot more of her and Aragorn's love story in the extended edition than in the regular version and especially in the two towers Mm. I think Mm. and I remember in the director's commentary Peter Jackson talking about how he really wanted to make sure that the character like resonated with the audience and so he like inserted these flashbacks and these memory like these dreams and stuff so that way you could really not forget about her character because she's really important in the end game and so and there was even rumors that they were going to think about maybe having her like get a sword and like go into battle and they decided we're not going to do that because that would like that's not who she is instead we're going to do this memory thing she was supposed to be the elfin commander in the two towers that brings reinforcements yeah and so they i'm actually I, oh. I'm seriously disappointed that they did not do that. Well, I mean, um, they like when it was when they were like on those message boards way back in the late 90s, when it came out <laughs> that they were thinking about doing that, the Lord of the Rings fans lost their minds because like that's not who she is. And you're just trying to like change her completely for this like BS kind of like PC feminism nonsense and whatever. Everything changes except fanboys being stupid and ruining things for the rest of us. Well, so they were like, okay, so we, we won't do that. Instead, we're going to do this kind of more interesting, more daring, more complicated way to like weave her into the narrative. And I, watching it now, and again, some of this is extended edition footage, and so it doesn't blend. Super, it makes those sections, I think, a little chunkier in the first place um, in a way that probably hurts that movie. Um, but, and so... I think it's probably leaner and a little bit better in the actual film. Uh, But it just really didn't work for me at all. And I thought that they were just very bland. And it's like, like you're watching her. And at first you see this interaction where she's like, okay, I'm going to stay here and be with you. And, and cause I love you. And then, and then you like go do another flashback that apparently took place like an hour later where she's like, all right, no, we're broken up because he, cause Aragorn's breaking up with me. It's like, but wait, we saw this in the last movie and that didn't happen. What are you talking about? And so it's just like, it just didn't, yeah. it just, her stuff just doesn't work very well. And then she's just like her heart, she's like heartbroken. And so she's dying, I guess, cause she's heartbroken for a while. And then, yeah, well, it, no, it that, just, that none part- of that worked. Well, that was that was added in the movies. Arwen's presence in the books is really very, very minimal. Uh, a yeah. lot, all the stuff with flashbacks that is added as a way to flesh out Arwen and Aragorn's um, character. But even then, I definitely watch revisiting these. I came away like thinking, okay, even more than I had remembered. I feel that Arwen was underserved. Like 
they should have not tried to treat her as like as important a character or they should have given her more stuff to actually do on the flip side of that i actually found myself liking eowyn that's uh, miranda otto's character and i actually agree with you completely that was one of the things that really surprised me on this rewatch is because i remembered that like she was just like she was like the king's daughter and she like wanted to fight in the war but they didn't want her to fight and that's like all i remembered about her in and watching her character, and I do also think that some of her character got additional scenes in the extended editions as well. But so I think that I yes. may have seen an even more fleshed out version than you guys did. But I yeah. thought she was great. And I thought especially she comes in in the second movie and then she's in the third movie. So she's not an original cast member. And she just really, really works in this movie. And she's really good. And I really liked her. And I could have seen even more of her. Um, there's a couple of things in the battle that don't work we- that are like weird where it's like like you get to a, there's a and I don't know if this is an extended edition issue or not but like in the final battle in Return of the King she's like standing and victoriously kills like one of the orcs or whatever and then and then in the next scene she's like on the ground and needs to be rescued by Aragorn and then in the next scene she's like running to help her father and like she gets to have this like great like moment where he dot like he dies in her arms and she's like very much alive like she's mildly injured but she's like very much present in the moment and like the whole scene is like oh i'm i'm like okay no living that's, ahead I think of that's so, an extended i think that's an extended issue yeah because she doesn't it, ever get saved by aragorn in the theatrical version. okay and then at the end and of that sequence extended. she's like dead on the ground and her and her brother runs up and is like oh my god she's dead and so like it's just there's no logic <laughs> to any of the things that are happening with her character in no that the, the theatrical version Theoden is attacked by the Night King. Uh, the Night King is about to like. You mean the Witch King? The Witch, yes, King. The Witch King. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> different franchise. Also, I just Witch I wanted King. to point out really quick. Uh, Theoden is is Eowyn and Eomer's uncle. She, you guys, these so, names are ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought Game of Thrones names anyway, were bad. So, let me tell my <laughs> where's uh, where's my Uncle story. Kevin when we need it. Like that's what I like. Let at least Kevin George R. R. Martin peppers in right, like so, normal anyway, names every once in a while. Anyway, so uh, before I was so rudely interrupted, <laughs> <laughs> no. So the theatrical version is um, Theoden is attacked by the Witch King of Angmar, and the uh, Witch King of Angmar is about to have his lizard dragon thing um eat theoden eowyn steps up in front kills the thing and she and um mariadoc combine their efforts to uh kill the witch king and then she collapses over like clearly injured but alive and she's she's just enough conscious enough to hold theoden and to say goodbye to him and then the assumption is that she sort of like just passes out after that and then she is found on the battlefield later um, that's how the original theatrical cut does it. And I think that is more streamlined. So they're like, I like the extended editions fine. I would not necessarily, with only a handful of exceptions, there were a, a number, some of the extended scenes, I think the original cuts better. Like it, in, like the, the one inexcusable sin, I think was cutting Christopher Lee out of the return of the King. But other than that, most of the extended edition stuff for me is, like nice extras but i would not say that they are inherently better than the theatrical cuts yeah and i think that it's difficult for me to say exactly because again i haven't seen the original cut of these movies 
maybe even since they were released in theaters because the the editions that I got when I bought them at home were the extended ones because I was like, oh, these are the real versions, you know, so that's what I got. So I, I really couldn't compare, but I will say watching these, you do feel the bloat. Like <laughs> there's, there's, there's an especially, and weirdly, like the Return of the King is way longer than uh than the two towers but the two towers really felt bloated in a way that i think has to mm. be uh at least partially due to the extended edition version that mm. i watched because the two towers is usually considered the best of the films how long was the um the two towers in the extended edition again um i can't i don't recall exactly but i, I have it here one second i want to say it's four because okay. the original's the original's about the same length as Fellowship. No, Fellowship and the Two Towers, like they're both almost exactly three hours, like on yeah. the dot. And then Return of the King is three hours and twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So uh the extended edition for the Fellowship is two oh eight. Um the extended edition for the Two Towers is two twenty three. And the the extended edition oh, wow. for the Return of the King is two fifty one. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, yeah. So Return of the King is like a four and a half hour long movie, and it didn't feel as long as The Two Towers to me when I was watching. Yeah. No, no. Proportionally, proportionally speaking, there was definitely more added to The Two Towers than to either of the other movies. Yeah. Okay. And I think, I, I think, did not that, know that. I think that it hurts the, the flow of that film a lot. As a well, now I'm really glad I didn't watch the extended versions. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to watch the extended editions again at some point. Like, I for a while, I wanted to rewatch the theatrical cuts and the extended editions just to revisit both in my mind. For this retrospective, I wanted to have the original cuts fresh. So I, I will watch the extended editions again one day. Yeah. I wanted to also just uh, to echo the sentiments about Miranda Otto here, because one of the things that I, especially seeing it this time, that I thought was really fascinating yeah. about her performance, especially once she gets on the battlefield, is it's, you can tell she is like terrified because it's the first time she's ever been on a battlefield, even though she's in, like an incredibly skilled fighter. So it's like she really plays that balance very well. And that is a really tough balance because the yeah. whole movie, they're saying, when you get out on that battlefield, you're going to realize that you're just a girl and you don't have any place there. And so she has to, in that moment, play the reality of the sh of the shock of war while not mm -hmm. betraying mm. the core of who that character is, that she'd still be there and want to fight, like without playing into these gendered ideas that have been kind of oppressing her yeah. in a way. So that's it's a very fine yeah. line that she has to that she has to walk. And she does a really good job. I agree. And she does it in the action sequences yeah. very well. Like that's that's a great use of action as character as opposed to just an action scene that's, you know, fun to watch. Do you guys do you guys agree with me though that like this movie lives and dies with Frodo and Sam and Gollum? Like that that's the best part of these thing these films. Uh, in the two towers, the Sam and Frodo and Gollum stuff are my least favorite parts really really oh i mean least favorite in the sense of like i'm being i'm simultaneously switching between three gourmet dishes i personally happen to prefer mm. two of them a little bit wow. more than the third one but they're all delicious and they're all better than like okay. most other food i will ever eat in my life you know i was probably more riveted by the hobbit stuff this time than i had been before okay which i think was just because i'm a lot because at this point i'm more aware of 
character and stuff like as opposed to mm. you know being like when are they going to get to the sword fights like, <laughs> yeah and uh, i was when's the opposite gonna hop as up onto that horse all cool like i really i really though i guess it's more return of the king but i really appreciated the mind games that that Gollum plays with Frodo. Yeah. Oh, those like are heart rending. How he has to have, yeah, like, like the way he turns Frodo against Sam, and he does it by like playing on what he understands. Like, so this is the thing about Gollum is that despite how you know crafty and and the terrible things that he does, he still has to have an understanding of other people and how other people would react and what. And he seems to know that like Sam would. Would maybe request to carry the ring, purely as purely as an altruistic thing, mm-hmm. purely as in, with noble intention, mm. and know like know that he would say that he would offer that or has a good chance of offering that, and using that against him, yeah, using that against Sam, and and playing on that with with Frodo because and I also I I think also watching it this time I recognize that so much of like. In addition to other things, just of how Frodo is, like he's a naturally merciful person, but also because he knows Gollum and he share a similar experience, ca- having literally carried this burden. Right. Mm. Well, and actually, and that came across. He's a lot not more in this entirely a naturally merciful person because when Gollum, when he first learns about Gollum from Gandalf, his reaction is, "Oh, why didn't?" Why didn't Bilbo just kill him? We should kill him. If we ever see him, we should just kill him because he's such a hateful, horrible creature. And then the arc that he goes on is this realization that actually, like, this is what, like, that they shared this commonality that Gollum understands something about himself, about Frodo, that no Mm. one else in the world can understand. And that, you know, and that Gollum is, like, basically Frodo's greatest fear come to life, that he will succumb Mm. in the way that Gollum has. And so there's actually, like, this really interesting complexity to that emotional arc that he has with Gollum. And what I what I want to say too about the movie and that their that relationship specifically is I was thinking about when I was watching the end of the of the Return of the King how you know Frodo is is rewarded for being the person who destroyed the ring but in fact that's not actually what happens mm. like he at the very yeah. last yeah. moment succumbs to the ring and it's only yes, Gollum's does. presence that mm-hmm. allows the ring to be destroyed yeah. and i think well how is that fair that he's getting this like virtuous you know celebration when really he ended up being no virtuous than anyone else and i thought and then i thought well, more about it that. well but but i thought yeah. more about it and what i realized is is that the virtuous act that Frodo is truly being rewarded for here is not being the one who was strong enough to carry the ring. It was being the one who was strong enough to treat Gollum with empathy and respect long enough mm, so that mm-hmm. way he was present in that space when, for yeah. those events to occur. And that that was truly mm-hmm. the act that he is being rewarded for. And that's an act that he did when he was compromised but still himself whereas when he's finally succumbed to the ring he is no longer himself and so he should no longer he shouldn't be really truly he should not be um uh penalized for no longer for losing himself in the way that all people eventually lose themselves to power it's the virtue yeah. that you show along the way and the way in which that hmm. helps 
Mm. It helps it like helps the world in general. That is what you are rewarded for. And I thought that that yeah. was like once I stumbled across that, I like really respected mm-hmm. the ending of the of the story all over again in a way that I was oh, yeah. briefly questioning. Yeah, the way that that is resolved is for me uh, one of the key factors that sets apart um, the Lord of the Rings story from most of the other contemporary or later stories in especially within the fantasy genre um because particularly within fantasy there is this tendency to to find some sort of happy ending you know maybe one maybe one or two of the good guys die a tragic death but some way there'll there'll be a way for the the good guys to come out ahead with things more or less intact i mean that's basically how all of the books in the shannara series end which is one of the like later lord of the rings imitator series that i personally love but the 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 flaws there are very very clear in that regard whereas the lord of the rings goes much much deeper uh than most stories of this nature would first off in the immediate sense like frodo does fail it's not it's not frodo who destroys the ring and you're right like it's it's through a combination of factors that leads to the mission ultimately being successful but frodo does have at the moment of truth like frodo is about to fail um that level and the fact that after that what happens with frodo is a character that on the one hand he knows that he failed uh in that in that in that sense um in terms of he did succumb and if sam and Gollum had not been there ring probably would not have been destroyed and this whole motif with him afterwards of like basically ptsd before it had a name before tolkien uh, ever would have been able to formulate mm. something like that but where it is clearly a scarring and a traumatization of everything that he has accomplished that leads him to the understanding of and that's what makes the ending of the story in the books and the movies so beautiful but in, in a truly heartbreaking sense that that's what real sacrifice ultimately is when you want to save something or protect or preserve something but if something ends up going far enough, and if you have to go to a dark enough place to do that, then ultimately, whether or not that's how, why, what you started out for, you end up not doing it for yourself. You end up doing it for others, and that that's true sacrifice. And part of that is the fact that you don't get to, uh, like, to to live in the world that you helped save. You don't get to bear the fruits of your labor because it is a truly virtuous act. Like that, that is what makes it a virtuous act is that he does not like he gets his own kind of reward in the sense of like he gets to go off and be with the elves and stuff. But he does, he all he ever wanted was to live in the Shire. And he has been changed so fundamentally by this quest that he yeah. will never be able to live in the Shire in the way that he yeah. once did. And that that is you're right. That is true sacrifice in the most virtuous sense. Yeah. And I think that is that is a very clear parallel to uh, his experience and the experience of many people of his generation in World War One, where he was so, and they didn't have the term PTSD, but at the time they had a term that basically meant the same thing, shell shocked. Yeah. And it yeah. was that these people, like they went into war because they thought they were doing what was right. And the, now the world is safe in whatever that means, but they lost themselves <laughs> in the process and they will know, yeah. they will never be able yeah. to appreciate the world that they saved because they have were so broken in doing the saving. And I think it's kind of beautiful the way that they present it here. And that's not just unique to World War One. I. I think that is a universal thing throughout human history. Yes, of course. I mean it's it's informed for him as World War One, but people yes. making great sacrifices, initially with the idea of, oh, I want to get back to what I had before, 
but ultimately in different times and in different places, people having to realize I can't do that. I've, I've created something that other people will enjoy, but I have to just sort of, I, I will just exist now and I will never have, have the, the peace of mind that I used to have. Or in other, on, uh, and on another hand, like some people don't do that and they try to pretend like everything's okay and that leads them down a road to greater unhappiness. I think you see little hints of that. The screen time that we do get of Frodo when he is back in the Shire before he goes to the Grey Havens. Yeah, absolutely. You get that sense just like in his bearing and just like this, like even though I do think like you could definitely see the Grey Havens as like a stand-in for that, like even before that, just within the performance itself, I think there's also that sense of things have are fundamentally different and they can never be brought back to the way they were originally. Yep. Oh my God, you guys, Elijah Wood is so good. He is very good. So good. good. I, I mean, I just think that his relationship with Sam and his relationship with Golem is just so, so powerful. Like one of the things that I truly have remembered since I saw it the first time was is the moment in return of the king where sam says like i, I cannot carry, carry this for you, for you but, but i can, can carry, carry you. you and it's like i, Immortal. I think yeah like Immortal. it just that is profound wisdom about what friendship is you know we cannot carry our friends burdens truly there's no way that we can yeah. we can't relieve that for them but what we can do is we can prop them up and we can try to make them make their lives more bearable and help them carry what they need to carry and that's just it's it's beautiful mm -hmm. and he de and he delivers it so yeah. beautifully and it means so much and it it makes me it makes me emotional every time i hear it and it's honestly it's words that i've tried to live by honestly like it was like i heard that when i was 13 years old and i've and in many ways i've tried to have that be a guiding principle in my life now for landing that moment alone sean austin deserves all the statues and all of the honors from now till the day he dies. Just ah, and he received not a, nary a Gandalf nomination. Gandalf was nominated for best supporting actor for the <laughs> Fellowship, and that is the only acting nomination in all three of the movies combined. Ian McKellen is so good in these movies. We can't yeah. not we can't go <laughs> this oh, whole yeah, time without mentioning that he yes. is unbelievable he is so committed and so like lived in and he feels like someone who's been around for so long and he has all Gandalf. of these complicated relationships like that like every like he has so many different types of relationships with different types of people in this movie or in this series of films and all of them feel real and like informed by a yeah. history that we haven't seen and he's just i mean another another like moment that has stuck with me since I saw it in theaters is the fly you fools like it just like the way he delivers it yeah. and then when I yeah. saw it again it's honestly he even underplays it more than I remembered and it just works so well it's just oh, he's yeah. amazing it's there's so not just him the the entire movie is so well cast seeing the movies again it struck me just how many moments are there in terms of the dialogue or the motions or just the style that this sort of high fantasy requires where I'm just thinking, wow, if Peter Jackson was not, if Peter Jackson did not have exactly the right uh, cast of people in these roles, and if they were not working on exactly the right wavelength, holy crap, would this scene not work at all? Something that really struck me also is that it's kind of, these series of films are kind of a miracle in that they occurred yeah. at literally the exact right moment they occurred at a time when the effects were there where you could do the things that you needed to do with effects but that they were not 
so omnipresent sure. that the studio would be like, no, we're just going to film this all in a lot, like in a soundstage in Atlanta or London. And, uh, and we will get to be outside for like 30 days and do what you need to do. And like where everything would then be CGI or heavily CGI focused. And, and it would have just ruined it because what really makes this world feel so lived in is that there is so much practicality to what we see on screen. And I know, yeah. Noah, that you really like the Hobbit movies, but you have to admit that the additional <laughs> presence of CGI we in those movies <laughs> really does act towards its detriment when you compare it to okay. the Lord of the Rings. Let, let me say let me just say to that. I am uh, I am still very much an apologist for the Hobbit movies for the most part, but never at any point have I ever maintained that they are on the same level as the Lord <laughs> of the Rings movies. At no okay. point have I maintained that. I think that they That's are true. at least the first two I think are better than most people give them credit for. The third one, eh. I, I think they are better than people give them credit for. I don't think they are the atrocities that a lot of people say that they are. But no, they are not on the same level. They they and they do not have the same. They clearly do not have the same level of care and attention to detail, uh, and that does make them lesser. And I do think a big part of that is because of the practicality of the world of Lord of the Rings, because it really is people in suits and landscapes and like, yeah, and then and they use matte paintings a lot of the times instead of a big gaudy CGI. Yeah, thing. they do. And mm -hmm. it just it mm. just works so much better. And it, it makes it feel so much more real. And I just it's just amazing that it was allowed to happen. I was struck by the detail given to the, the costumes and makeup for the orcs. Like yeah. how you can really you can really differentiate oh, between so many of them. <laughs> it's just it's astonishing to me. And that's how like it, they had just the right balance between having enough orcs where you could clearly tell, OK, like those are all real dudes who all look wildly different from each other and they're heavily made up. And then, OK, the 5000 behind them are obviously CGI. But like it like unless you really mm. sit there and stare at the screen you know, as in, in the process of watching the movie, you can't tell the difference. I just wanted to really quick remark on McKellen, oh, yeah. um, just to get back to that for a second. <laughs> just because, so first of all, you get a guy who is like heavily versed in not just Shakespeare, but just like, but like classical drama. And again, who takes it very seriously and has, and is really like a dynamic character. I mean, I guess like kind of like you mentioned before, Alex, about how his like his interactions with different people and that you get a sense of the history between them. I would also say like depending on the situation, his performance changes. So like when he's trying to rally the troops in Minas Tirith at the in Return of the King, he's a very focused, very serious. But then he has other moments where he can calm us like he has this like comedic sort of approach to it. I has a very interesting I mean, like, sense he'll of be, humor. <laughs> he'll, he'll give like a little bit of a wink, you know, after he delivers a line or he'll almost like it. I like the scene when he is, uh, when he's, when he's in Edoras and trying to go into the, you know, going to the, the hall where the King is. Um, and he says, Oh, you wouldn't deprive an old man of his, of his walking stick. And just like, like puts on like, almost like does like a mini performance of this doddering old man, which he's definitely <laughs> yeah. not like, it's just, he just brings the right kind of performance to the occasion too. Like, and yet it still feels consistent. It's just pretty amazing. I, I think that that's incredibly correct. He's just so versatile as a performer and he manages to center it within 
this character that feels like a that feels consistent despite all of the versatility that you just described that's yes that's a great point it's such a great example of a care of an actor becoming the performance becoming the character so thoroughly that god help any studio or director who decides to retell this story or tell a similar story and say and i'm going to recast gandalf like okay have fun. It's going to be terrible. No one's going to like imagine like imagine someone <laughs> trying to redo the Iron Man movies without Robert Downey Jr. Like just part of what made the later X-Men movies so hard to watch is that you no longer had Patrick Stewart as Xavier. Like like some performers managed to become the roles so perfectly that it's Although just like, I will, I will say that Michael Fassbender does a pretty good job as Magneto taking over for Ian McKellen. I, I would definitely. He comes definitely about as so. close as you can get to like. I, but that being said, I don't think that he would be able to do what McKellen does in the role of Gandalf. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I would agree. That's just. Uh, it would be remiss if we do not mention the career-defining work of Howard Shore with the music. Yeah, the music um, is unbelievable. That like it, that jumped out at me. To, this is so the soundtrack hard. to my life. I don't remember the music. It's not part of my memory of the film. And so when I watched it now, I was just so taken mm. aback by how gorgeous this film this music is and how well it works in with the film. And how all of the themes are revisited and brought back and altered in, in slight variations throughout all three mm. of the movies. Like the the score grows organically with the movies and with the characters. Uh, and it is just just listening, hmm. watching all three movies, om- almost not exactly, but om- in a short space of time, I was much more attuned to that. And of course, I've been listening to the soundtracks on and off ever since the movies came out. Like they are a work of art on par with the movies themselves in terms of the the, the sheer creativity and artistry and the mastery of the craft that is present in them. Yeah, I got to say, I actually, rec- even though I recognize so many of the cues just watching it this time, I'm like, I've underrated this score. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is like, it's like instantly iconic. I remember hearing it the first time and being blown away and hearing it again, mm. just like, and especially when like certain music cues, like actually like brought a tear to my eye because I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I know what's about to happen. Just the oh, part great. in the Blackgate sequence where it cuts, it's just. It's not even a sequence where anything happens. You just they briefly cut to a shot of Sam and Frodo literally crawling through the ashes up to Mount Doom. And then it cuts back to the battle. But during that moment where you're just seeing Frodo claw through the ashes, you hear a single flute that just sort of soars up incredibly high uh as you're seeing this like it, this dirty, grimy like like sweaty suffering bleeding person trying to claw his way up the mountainside and oh it's yeah. just, it was a dagger of pure feeling right to the gut yeah it's really <laughs> impressive um but so to wrap up the last thing that i wanted to ask you guys as i think it's fair to say even though i really like these movies i think you guys both like it them even more than I do. When I was watching it this time around, I had Game of Thrones fresh in my brain because I just, in the last year, I watched the entire series over again. And of course, the finale, uh, the final season aired. And so it's, it's still, it's close in my brain. And I started to think about the contrast between these two worlds. 
And I think part of what made me less engaged with the the pure fantasy elements of this of this world and of the story and how that interacts with especially like Aragon and and all of the and like the elves and everything else like with that stuff is the fact that like this world is a world that has clear good and clear evil and then a clear group of people in between struggling to exist like inside of that that the that those two polarities and game of thrones presents a world where there is no i mean outside of the night king which honestly is a bit regrettable um there is no real clear evil or real clear virtue everyone is compromised and everyone is complicated and i think i'm i well i know i'm more engaged with a world where there isn't a clear villain because i just by nature and this was definitely not the case when i first watched these films when i first watched these films i was much more engaged with this idea of like righteousness and of there being clear villainy in the world and now that's an idea that i almost kind of recoil away from the idea that like when people do bad things they get labeled as evil as a way to dismiss them and not engage with how they ended up that way and what game of thrones does really good is it directly engages with how they end up that way i mean even the night king has a kind of sad and tortured history so as much as we know about it you know where like he was created he was just a man and he was created as a living weapon by these people and then that was and then he kind of got his revenge on them so like in this world of the lord of the rings there's like orcs who are just evil and there's orakai who are even more evil and like saruman is a is a character (laughs) who has been corrupted right he was not evil and now he has been corrupted or compromised in a way right but sauron is pure evil manifest so and at the when all of this gets resolved it's like the noble aragorn is now like not even sauron's not even the biggest evil he's the former apprentice of the true origin of evil okay and uh, okay <laughs> like Sauron, Sauron was just the successor he was the clerk who picked up the pieces after his <laughs> former boss got killed off but so my like the issue that i have is that this is it's it's harder now for me to really feel excited and engaged by a world where there's pure evil that our noble heroes are fighting against was that a problem for you guys no because it is part of our storytelling and part of our psychology that we seek uh, and create narratives like this and i think having those narratives and appreciating them uh, in certain times in and of itself is not a bad thing um, as long as we are willing to, you know, when, when, when the time calls for it, when we are willing to critically engage with them and when we're willing to be rational and intelligent and recognize, you know, for example, uh, you know, in an upcoming presidential election to not assume that, well, okay, if we just find our Aragorn, everything's going to be fine. Um, like, no, that's a very bad time and place to you know try and think in lord of the rings terms or that the people who follow the person who we think is doing evil in the world are evil and just need to be dismissed as evil like that also is problematic like at the end of the lord yeah. of the rings what happened like the orcs are just pure evil beings that i guess all get murdered i don't know you know like that's yeah. also a problem for me justin what do you think well so i so i was gonna say like I totally hear what you're saying because I know that 
like in general, I would say I'm the kind of person who prefers, like I prefer moral murkiness and gray areas and that sort of thing. And that was actually something on my mind before I watched these movies. I was like, I was like, is it going to feel too just almost trite now that like I have a better understanding of morality and like the kinds of things that I tend to like to see in these kinds of things, in these kinds of stories. I feel that this story is like what is like the best version of this particular kind of story. And it does give us enough moments, I think, you know, with Frodo, especially and with Gollum, like it does give us little moments of that. So it doesn't feel like just completely like good guys and bad guys. But I would say like it's this is probably closer to myth in some ways than maybe something like Game of Thrones, which is a little grittier. And it's probably it's lighter on the fantasy, whereas like this Lord of the Rings is yeah. heavy <laughs> on the fantasy. Um, but there's also a lot of grittiness there too. You can see Peter Jackson's roots in low budget sure, horror yeah, when rewatching these movies. Oh, absolutely. So many heads. Absolutely. So many um, heads. But I see it almost as like the best version of that thing and that and that can possibly serve as a a beacon of hope mm. for you know for us like it's 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 it is idealized perhaps like much more than something like mm. game of thrones though even game of thrones i think has some moments like that and it's i think it's a better realized version of the kind of story it wants to tell and for that i really love it and for for a myriad of other reasons uh that said i also like i think i can also respect that because it's not the only kind of fantasy story that exists yeah. in the world if it existed in a vacuum that would be more yeah. of a problem um, because I want to see more fantasy that's more inclusive, that wrestles with, you know, with these questions. That has more women, that has people of color. Yeah. Yes, all these things. So it's, it's, if it existed in a vacuum, then that would be a problem. But because I do have these other things, I think, I guess I also look at it the way I look at like, like Greek myths or something. Yeah. Like a lot of these are like, kind of like outsized personalities and they're fascinating stories, but they're not, they might not have like the level of complexity that we come to see in other, in other stories. So for me, it's like, I want to have all these things. Mm. And as long as it's not like existing in a vacuum, then that, that would be, I, where I like I the Greek the mythology comparison. I, th I think that's a pretty sound one because it's, it, that's very much the vein. Well, in Greek mythology though, like all of, like, there's a lot of moral complexity and there aren't really any clear good guys and bad guys. Yeah. It depends on the particular <laughs> yeah. myth, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> You know, there's a difference between like the Odyssey and say like the stories of Perseus, yeah. for example, which I think like the Odyssey has some really fascinating stuff. I feel like what's great about like the Pantheon is that they're all just a bunch of like petty bitches and like, <laughs> you know, like there's like that's <laughs> that what's fun about it. You know, it's like a soap opera in a lot of ways where, you know, where you root for kind of like the more like nefarious people because there's interesting humanity inside of them. And there's no there's no humanity oh, sure. in Sauron. Or the, and and I think the only humanity in Orakai at all is like when the one dude is like meats back on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like meats back on the menu, boys. With that attitude, <laughs> it's like were they at like the Red Lobster last week? Like what are they talking about? <laughs> How long does an Orakai have to live for it to develop? vocabulary words like menu <laughs> yeah like this dude got like <laughs> dug out of the ground uh like two weeks ago <laughs> they technically were born yesterday so 
But I guess there's like they went through like uh, Saruman's finishing school ahead of the uh, <laughs> conquest. It's like I feel like like in in the Fellowship, <laughs> yeah. it's all Orakai. But then in the second movie, it's like okay, half of them are Orakai, and the other half are just regular goblins, apparently, mm-hmm. and they're at odds with each other. <laughs> yeah. Did they meet yeah. up? Ha- did they meet up at a way station? We're like, all right, come on, we're heading back to Saruman. Let's go. All right. Well, we're gonna wrap it up there. We just talked for a hell of a long time <laughs> about Lord of the Rings and surprise. And surprise. this is just the original uh, edition. Come let's... back next week to get our extended edition. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, we have that. Guys, uh, I have some bad news. I think we're gonna have to miss uh, our next recording. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We got Peter Jackson to oh good, in your oh, great, great. Only as only in cameos though. I I only I <laughs> only want to hear from him if he's with Fran. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> oh okay. Because <laughs> that's the, the comment. No, yeah. the commentaries is him and Fran and the other one that I don't remember her name. <laughs> Philip right, so Next week, yes. Peter Jackson will be here eating a carrot and throwing a spear. Sounds awesome. good. Well, okay. in the meantime, okay, so let's. Let's talk about where we can find everyone. So, Noah, start us off, won't you? All right. Well, in addition to my work in Cinema Jokes, you can catch all of my written material at francenoir.blogspot.com. Awesome. You can find me at The Cinemaverick on Letterboxd. I also have a website, thecinemaverick.com. How about you, Alex? Well, you can find me on Twitter and at Letterboxd, at Media Thinkings. And you can also follow our show on Twitter at Cinema Joes. And you can follow our show on Instagram at Cinema Joes for exclusive visual companions to every episode. Also, if you click on the link at our Twitter page when we post our new episodes, you can follow that to anchor.com, which is our main platform, where you can leave us a voicemail if you want to give us some feedback. Uh, You could also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Feel free to uh, review and subscribe to any of those places and follow us everywhere. It only helps the show. Until next time, I'm going to be keeping it wriggly and raw. Awesome. I think the less context we provide for that, the better, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nobody likes you. We did not say the name Andy Serkis in this episode, and that is a crime. Oh my gosh, you're right. We somehow amazing in yeah, this. he's fantastic. As are all of the Weta animators who helped That'll, all right, so create his performance. Andy Serkis thoughts in the extended edition of this podcast viewers. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Alright folks well I think it's time for us to sign off. We are going to be we are going to uh, jump on a bed in white light erotically and uh, that'll be our <laughs> nice little uh, nice little farewell. When I remember like specific sound cues, like when when Frodo sees Gimli, he just goes, Gimli. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, you know, I've seen it way too many times. All right, <laughs> farewell to all, and to all a good night. <laughs> I mean, I would watch like the Night Witch or the or and the Night King or whatever the Witch King and the Night King. The Witch King. <laughs> yeah, I'd I'd watch them face off. That would be fun. That would be fun. Oh, the Witch like, King they... would win. Who are you kidding? Well, no, like they would fight a little, kiss a little. You know, it'd be yeah. fun. Yeah. Especially because like one doesn't have a face and the other one's face can't move. So like, I'd be interested to see how that would work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to end this episode. <laughs>